0: Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You're joining us for the story series. This week, Chris Marshall kicks us off with how to read the Bible as a story. Enjoy. I was a university student, which was over 40 years ago now. Uh, I was involved in organizing what was New Zealand's first Jesus March. The period of time uh, all around the world when Jesus Marches were held. One big one in Auckland, I remember with a. But um, one that we organised here in Wellington, well, one of two actually, was a Gathering for Jesus. One of the guys who participated in that, who was a, a, a new Christian who had a powerful, in fact, even quite a mystical conversion experience, wanted to carry a placard in the parade, or not the parade, in the march, uh, with the slogan, "Read the Bible, mm. it'll scare the hell out of you," which um, is quite a provocative slogan, but also in some ways quite insightful, because it says two things about the Bible. The first is that it's a book that's worth reading. So read the Bible, it's worth reading. Books are always written to inform us about something, to tell us something about life or about the world that the author thinks we ought to know or that we will. Enjoy. So I guess the Bible is the same in that sense. A book whose authors want to convey what they feel is crucial and really interesting information. Things we need to know about God and about God's ways and God's uh, character, uh, things about human experience, why it is we find both dignity, gravity, both nobility and savagery, why the human race can produce both a Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, why we have both hospices and concentration camps, both peacemakers, why it is that things are this way, why things have gone wrong and what God who is the doing about it. So the Bible informs us about these great issues. It, if you like, reveals things that we could not discover by our own autonomous effort. So in Christian theology, the Bible is often referred to as revelation. And the idea of revelation is that it's not something you could ever discover by your own effort. It's something that has to be disclosed to you. And for those reasons, you could say the Bible is worth reading. The other thing about the slogan was, though, an implication that the Bible also has power to do something. It doesn't just inform us like a good textbook. It also transforms us. It scares the hell out of us. Uh, When taken seriously, the message of the Bible is able to identify and to drive out of our lives the things that are thoughts and fears and brokenness and ignorance. By tending to the words of scripture, we can be more of our created potential. So you could say of the Bible that it is both God's informing and God's transforming work. It forms us of things that we could not discover elsewhere, and according to Jesus, when we know the truth, it will set us and it serves to transform us, to begin to heal and liberate us, to change us, to equip us, particularly out of the grand plan for planet Earth. But why does the Bible have this informing and transforming potency? How do we explain its power and its role? Well, it's not, I think, because of some magical quality inherent in the ink on the page. Because it's quite possible to read the Bible and not be informed and not be transformed by it. In fact, Jesus warned his hearers that it was possible to search the Scriptures diligently, thinking there was something within them that would give life, and yet still fail to understand or to hear what they say. So wherein lies Scripture's power? Wherein lies its significance? How do we read the Bible so that we are properly informed and properly transformed by its content? Well, part of the answer lies in the attitudes we bring to the reading of the text. We need to come with humility, we need to come with a receptive heart, we need to trust that God will speak to us through the words on the page. Again, in Christian theology, the word has never been seen as sufficient in itself. The word and the spirit always go together. It is the spirit that takes the word and speaks to us. And the spirit, as we know, only becomes active in our lives when we invite the spirit to be active. So part of the answer lies in the attitudes that we bring. But another big part of the answer, I think, lies in the interpretive framework we employ. The Guidelines or presuppositions we use, how we construe the Bible's overall message and direction, how we fit the bits together, or to use a phrase from 2 Timothy, how we rightly divide the word of truth. Now, this is really rather important because we can wrongly divide the word of truth. In other words, we can misinterpret it, and when we do, the Bible becomes a very dangerous book. It's not an informing and transforming word, but it's a misinforming and deforming word. It tells us false things about God and about the world, and it distorts our witness to God in the world. The world is full of people who bear false witness to God on the basis of distorted readings of Scripture, uh, including particularly in our day the religious zealots who employ violence in the name of God. Uh, on both sides of the terrorist divide. Of course, there's room for enormous legitimacy of of diversity in how we understand the Bible, but it does seem that some basic ground rules need to apply. Uh, Otherwise, we have no way of discerning what is true or what is good other than by intuition and personal preference. And intuition and personal preference, being a very intuitive person, this needs to be said to me as much as anybody, intuition and personal preference can be very dangerous. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, John 16, they will put you out of, again, this is a text actually for today when you think about what's going on in in the Middle East in particular. They'll put you out of the synagogues indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you think that by doing so they are offering worship to God. Isis, isn't it? When those who kill you think they are offering worship to God and they would do this because they have not known the Father or me. Uh, some years ago, not 40 years ago, more recently than that, I, I gave a public lecture entitled Reengaging the Bible in a Postmodern World. Uh, and in that lecture, I began by noting the glaring contrast between what Christians say about the Bible and what Christians actually do with the Bible. Most Christians, if they're still bothering to call themselves a Christian, I mean, there was a time when such people would still call themselves a Christian, but most of them have given up now. Most Christians hold a very high view of Scripture. They consider it to be, in some sense, whatever these words mean, the inspired word of God that possesses supreme authority in matters of life and faith. I think most people today who would identify... uh, as Christians would, would subscribe to that view, at least implicitly. Some go even further and insist on, and this is a technical phrase, the full verbal, plenary, a verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture, the full verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture, by which they mean that every single word of the scriptural text, every grammatical point, every punctuation point, has been consciously selected by God for the purpose of imparting infallible propositional truth. Uh, In the US, where all interesting things happen, uh, go back 20 or so or 30 years ago, and it probably still goes on today, but uh, particularly in the 1970s, 80s and so on, conservative Christians fought battles for the Bible. Uh, In fact, I remember reading a book called Battle for the Bible. And the key idea here was that you had to accept the, and this is the word that was used, the inerrancy of scripture. So inerrancy means what? No errors. Okay, complete perfection. And being able to confess that you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture was considered the touchstone of orthodoxy. And In fact, it was an essential job requirement for keeping, uh, requirement for keeping your job. Uh, there are many Christian institutions in the U.S. and actually, what wider than that, where people lost their jobs because they couldn't actually sign the form which said, "Believe in the inerrancy of Scripture." So Christians have made very exalted claims for the significance of the Bible. But in practice, what I suggested in the lecture was, and let me just quote myself uh, for a moment. In practice, the Christian community is becoming increasingly estranged from its sacred text, the Bible, and increasingly deaf to its witness, bewildered by its contents, unsure of how best to read it or apply it responsibly in life, and unable to explain just why it is the Bible ought to be esteemed so highly. This is true even of the most conservative evangelical and Pentecostal churches that make the loudest claims about the divine dignity, authority, even inerrancy of the Bible, yet who in some respects are most adept at distorting the text. They describe the Bible in grandiose terms, but the depth and breadth of their engagement with Scripture remains superficial at best and downright manipulative at worst. Just think of Health and Wealth Gospel as an example of that. Yet it's not enough to make big claims about the Bible's uniqueness and authority. The authority that any text possesses is not measured by what we say about the text, but by what we do with the text by the way we permit the text to function in our life and thoughts. Sorry, I just lost my uh, place there. If it is true, as I actually believe it is, the Scriptures possess supreme authority in faith and life, then what ought to be evident in our congregations is serious, sustained, and intelligent attention to the actual meaning of Scripture. After all, the Church Universal has always confessed that when the faithful listen attentively and humbly to Scripture they can hear the very voice of God addressing them, instructing them, comforting them and transforming them, which when you stop to think about it is an awesome thing to contemplate. I then went on in this lecture to describe four problems that I think exist in the way that contemporary Christians relate to the Bible. I want to mention all four, but it's the fourth one I'm going to expand on. There was firstly the problem of dwindling acquaintance, the fact that uh, there is a declining knowledge of the actual content of the biblical text in uh, Christian circles. I mean, I think I said in the lecture that my father knew much more about the Bible than its actual content than I did, and I'm theologically trained, and I probably know a bit more than Peter does, and Peter probably knows a bit more than Jackson does, and so as you go down through, as you go down through the generations, there's a kind of um, declining knowledge of what the Bible actually says. The second is a crisis of confidence. There is a deep worry, I think, in many parts of the church that the Bible's truthfulness has actually been discredited by historical and scientific research. Now, that's widely assumed in broader society. But again, to quote um, the guru himself, even within the church, there are many who harbour profound doubts as to whether the Bible has somehow now shown to be false or flawed or fictitious whether by modern scientific research or by historical analysis. Some voice this fear openly and embark on new journeys across the choppy sea of faith. Others refuse to face their doubts and simply shout louder about biblical inerrancy. Many remain in a state of flux, painfully aware that the world probably wasn't created in six literal days. And homosexuality can't simply be wished away by biblical fear Or that the great bulk of humanity probably isn't going to fry forever in hell. But not quite sure where this leaves the Bible. Which they still do want to believe, but don't feel quite as certain about as they used to be. The third problem I talked about in the lecture was what I called a crisis of authority. And by that I meant not so much whether the Bible is authoritative, but an increasing inability that people, Christians, have to explain why the Bible has unique authority. I mean, why the Bible and not the Koran? Why the Bible and not the Book of Mormon? Why the Bible and not the Bhagavad Gita? Or why the Gospel of Matthew and not the Gospel of Mary, which we also have. Or the Gospel of Judas, which was miraculously released just before Easter a couple of years ago, so that many copies would sell of the books written about it. Or the Gospel of Thomas, which is actually a very interesting document. Or any of the other 40 Apocryphal Gospels we know of. Is ascribing authority to the Bible an arbitrary decision, or are there good reasons for it? Many people today struggle to answer that question. And then the fourth problem I talked about was the problem of interpretation, which is a kind of widespread lack of skill on the part of preachers and many ordinary readers in how we go about actually interpreting and applying the text. Now, that's not surprising. It's easy to be critical. Making sense of the Bible is by no means an easy thing, even for the experts. It's complicated by a number of factors about the Bible. I mean, for one, the Bible is a very old book. I mean, none of the authors are around to ask what on earth they meant. It didn't drop by parachute from heaven just the other day. It consists of 66 very ancient documents written in three ancient languages over at least a 1,200-year span, the most recent of which is still 2,000 years old. So, you know, it's it's an old book. It's also a very diverse book. There's a diversity of authors and editors and perspectives. There are a huge diversity of literary forms. There's drama and poetry and narrative and history and proverbs and liturgy and parable and fantasy uh, and there's letters and all kinds of other literary forms. Different rules of interpretation apply to different forms of literature. We need to treat poetry as poetry, history as history. We need to treat symbolism as symbolism, proverbs as proverbs. Proverbs are not sort of infallible scientific truths that apply in every case. They're just crystallizations of an insight, and we need to regard them as such. A common mistake in more conservative circles is to treat figurative or poetic language as though it's literal and scientific, which is where creationists get into trouble when they read Genesis 1. The Bible is also a very foreign book. It's Reflective of Middle Eastern and Greco-Roman cultural values and languages that are quite unlike our own. So when we read the Bible, we're engaging in an exercise in cross-cultural communication with all the attendant pitfalls that cross-cultural communication always has. And then if all that's not enough, we need to recognise that we as Bible readers are a very biased bunch. None of us are neutral or objective absorbers of inerrant propositional truth. Even if God has given us that, Uh, None of us have the capacity to actually absorb it as such. We bring a whole range of personal experiences, of prior understandings, of cultural and gender assumptions, of theological beliefs, of political convictions that we bring with us to the reading of the text, and hey, presto, we see them reflected in the text. Albert Schweitzer very famously described the quest for the historical Jesus as looking down a well and seeing your own face reflected in the water. And in many ways, when when different communities read the Bible, we end up seeing the things that we bring to it more than what's actually there. It's no accident that liberation theology was born in Latin America, not in North America. That feminist theology was invented by women, not by men. That Pentecostals, when they read the Bible, always find text about the Holy Spirit. When Calvinists read it, they find texts about the sovereignty of God. When Anabaptists read it, they see the truth. They, <laughs> they see all the stuff about peace and justice. All of us are highly selective. So biblical interpretation is a complicated business. There are lots of considerations that we need to bear in mind. But arguably, to get to my topic, the most important thing I think for us to recognize when we read the Bible is its narrative quality, the Bible as story. We can only begin to make sense of the meaning and at least the significance of Scripture. And also, I'm going to suggest in a moment, the authority of Scripture by understanding its overarching storyline or what Justin has been calling in preparation for this series the meta-narrative, the big story, and not only understanding the big storyline but seeing the story of Jesus as the key to unlocking the meaning of the whole, the lens for viewing the rest, the way in which we can begin to discern the relevance of the message for today. Now, in my upbringing, and I guess in many others as well, the Bible was often treated as a devotional manual or as a doctrinal handbook. Or perhaps as a moral treatise Or as a legal code Or as I was associated with my mother uh, As a collection of promises I don't know if you can still get them or not But she used to have a a promise box Which was, you can still get them Which was these biblical texts taken And rolled up into scrolls and popped into this box And whenever you wanted God to speak to you about something You just took one of the promises Unrolled it and hey presto You had your answer So the Bible was a collection of promises Now the Bible... It does include devotional material, and we should read it devotionally. Perhaps we should read it devotionally mainly. Perhaps that should be our primary way of engaging it. And it does contain moral and doctrinal uh, truths, and it does bear witness to God's faithfulness to His promises. But the Bible as a whole serves a different kind of function. The canon, which is the word for you know the word for this assemblage of texts that the Church has chosen to give uh, authority to, the canon is more than the constituent, some of its constituent parts. It is not a collection of timeless abstract spiritual truths or promises, dictated by God or miraculously downloaded into the minds of the biblical writers. Ironically, many conservative Christians actually have a more Islamic notion of biblical inspiration than a Christian notion. The idea that this stuff has just been dictated and recorded without any human interpretation. That's not what the church has ever said about the Bible, although it's the way many Christians treat it. Rather, the Bible is fundamentally a storybook. Narrative is the dominant genre within the Bible, and the 66 documents for all their diversity are unified by being part of the same large overarching story with God as the chief protagonist. It's a story that begins in a garden and it ends in a city. It ends in the New Jerusalem. The Bible tells one large story with six major acts within this large drama and with a zillion scenes within those acts. It begins at creation... It talks about the fall into sin and death. It describes the calling of Israel. It mainly describes the calling of Israel, actually. The coming of Christ, uh, the birth of the church, and it looks forward to the final consummation, the final healing of creation. Now, all stories develop and change as the plot progresses. Whatever story it is that we read, what occurs in the early parts of the story, takes on new significance in light of later developments in the story. And that's true of the Bible as well. Each text needs to be related, first of all, to its place in the overall story. Now, I mean, this sounds really obvious when you say it, but it's incredible how little it's actually done by people. The texts that deal with the time of Israel, which is the bulk, have less direct relevance today than those that deal with the time of Christ and the church. Or to put it very simply, Moses is less important to Christian practice than Jesus. Or for that matter, Paul. Moses is less important. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul um, actually shifts the attention away from Moses, who of course in Jewish tradition is the supreme figure, because he... Gave the law, he, he um, imparted the law to Israel. Paul moves the, the focus back to Abraham because in Abraham he sees a more inclusive figure than he sees in Moses. But Abraham is not as important to the Christian community as Jesus. They look different in light of what comes later in the drama of salvation. John says this in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. The law, he says, indeed was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now this means I think that any essential that an essential requirement for any faithful interpretation of Scripture is recognition of the centrality of Jesus to the meaning of the biblical drama. Each and every part of Scripture must finally be assessed in relation to the measure of Jesus, who Christians confess is the supreme revelation of what God is really like, at least in human form, at least within human experience. Listen to the words that open the epistle to the Hebrews, and you can sort of sense the the kind of narrative assumptions that the writer makes. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's being. That word, exact imprint, word character, is the word that was used for uh, when a seal went into a, into a wax um, tablet. And on the wax was the exact imprint of the seal. And the writer here, and this always astonishes me, this is 30 years after the crucifixion. This is not 300 years later. That almost immediately the first Christians began to think of Jesus as the one who was the exact reflection of what God was like. And that put all else that occurred earlier in the drama into the shadows. It didn't dismiss it as being irrelevant, but it put it into the shadows. And actually, you know, going back to why the Bible is important for the church, for me, this is the answer to that question. The reason why the Bible is so indispensable to the Christian community, the reason why Christianity cannot exist without the Bible, is because without the Bible, we would know nothing about Jesus. We would know nothing of, of significance about. We would know he existed because we have those sort of indications in a few secular sources, Uh, we'd know he had some disciples, we'd know he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, but apart from that, we would know nothing. We need the Bible to tell us about Jesus. And if Jesus actually is the exact imprint of God's being, then we need the Bible even more to know what that imprint looks like. So again, to quote myself, terrible, isn't it, but I will. The central truth claim of the Christian religion is that the one true God is made most fully known in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God made flesh. Christians believe that Jesus is the human face of God, which means in turn that God's own identity... Now listen to this, because I think this is the core of my my Christian ethics... Which means, in turn, that God's own identity must be fundamentally Jesus-like in character. If Jesus is the exact imprint of God, then God must look like Jesus. To me, that is, the, that is the very foundation of Christian discipleship. Without this foundational conviction, the Christian movement would have never got started in the first place. Yet this claim would have no material content whatsoever were it not for Scripture. For without the canonical Gospels, we would know virtually nothing of the life-teaching death and resurrection of Jesus, or of his larger significance for the story of Israel. So then, if the person of Jesus Christ is indispensable to the Christian religion, so too must Scripture be indispensable. And if Scripture is indispensable because it bears unique witness to Jesus Christ, then it must be Jesus Christ himself who furnishes the indispensable key for making sense of Scripture. So this leads to a simple but important hermeneutical principle. And the word hermeneutics just means principles of interpretation. I don't know whether I invented this or I pinched it. I mean, a lot of things that I think I've come up with, I shamefully read other people have said before me. But here it is, and I offer this to you as a really helpful guide for reading the Bible and trying to make sense of what it means for today. And here it is. In reading the Old Testament, we should never apply it directly to today without first asking, what difference does Jesus make? In reading the Old Testament, we should never apply it directly today without first asking, what difference does? Does Jesus make? Now I pose it as a question because the answer varies. Sometimes Jesus makes no difference at all. Sometimes Jesus makes a minor difference. Sometimes he makes a very big difference. And when we think, for example, of things like sacrifice and for Paul the obligatory nature of circumcision or we think of the God of war in the Old Testament, what difference does Jesus make? Well, I think he makes a very big difference. We need to ask that question every time. What difference does Jesus make? Appreciating, I've almost finished, appreciating the story nature of the Bible, I think is also crucial for thinking about what the phrase biblical authority means and how it should function today. If God intends the Bible to be the supreme authority for the community that that bears witness to him, and if the Bible is primarily a story book or a narrative, then the Bible must possess a kind of narrative authority, a story kind of authority more than a rule book kind of authority. Now God is wise enough, if he had wanted to, to have given us a law code, or a rule book, or a textbook, or a theology book. Uh, which we could sort of thumb through and look up the answers to all our questions. God did not do that. Instead, we have been given a storybook. Story authority is more dynamic, it's more creative, it's more open-ended than legal or creedal authority is. Story authority works not by telling us a list of do's and don'ts that we have to obey regardless of circumstance, Story authority works by giving us a way of looking at life, a way of looking at the world, a framework for clarifying the meaning of our values and and, and our priorities and the things that we spend our time with on, a way of, of looking at life as a whole. So when we read the biblical story today, a story of God's dealings with people in the past, when we read that story today... Our goal is to ask what does God require from us today living in what we're going to call in this series Act 5 of the biblical drama. So Act 1 is creation, Act 2 is is when it got messed up, Act 3 is the call of Israel, Act 4 is the coming and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Act 5 begins in the book of Acts in the age of the church and we're still living in Act 5 and at the end we know that Act 6 will see the final healing of all creation. So when we live living in Act 5 and we read the Bible of what's gone on in the past, we're asking, well, what do we gain from this that will help us live faithfully today? And there are no easy answers to that question. But I think we can say that what God requires of us today will be consistent with what God's will and ways was like in the past, or at least consistent with His deepest values and commitments on the other hand i think we can say it will be different than it was in the past because life has moved on and things aren't the same in the 21st century that they were in the 1st century or in the 12th century bc our task is not simply to repeat the past i mean there's Within, again, within conservative Christian circles, there's been a lot of talk about sort of being the New Testament church, as though somehow you go back and you just repeat what's happened earlier on. Our, Our task is not to repeat the past, our task is to learn from the past and to live today in a way that is consistent with what we see. I've got one attentive listener anyway, with what we see of the values and the truths and the principles that are recorded in the past and always measured against the measure of Jesus. And it's this understanding of biblical authority that spares us from the dangers of legalism and moralism and dogmatism and allows us to really be open to a kind of spirit-led creativity. Which brings us to St. Tom Wright, (coughs) who posed in an article he wrote many years ago in which I used... um, with students for quite a long time, and then Justin discovered a whole book that had been an expansion of it. But Tom Wright proposed, I think, a very helpful analogy for understanding what it means to have the Bible as an authority for today. He said, imagine that a five-act Shakespearean play had been written, but it had been lost, and it wasn't part of Shakespeare's known corpus. But then it was discovered, but the fifth act of the play was missing. So it was a, was a, it was a damaged manuscript. And when uh, the scholars read the first four acts, they thought, this was such a brilliant play. It was so exciting. It had such a wealth of characterization. This play needs to be staged. But we don't have Act 5 available. We just have it going up to the Act 4. So he said, well, what do you do about that? Well, one solution would be to... Um, get somebody to write an Act V to sort of become a kind of 21st century Shakespeare and to try and finish the play on Shakespeare's behalf. Uh, but that wouldn't be very advisable, uh, Tom Wright says, because that would freeze the play into just one form and it might, be not, might not be what Shakespeare had ever intended. Uh, and it wouldn't be, you know, it would mean the play would not be entirely Shakespeare's work. So a better solution would be to get a group of highly trained Shakespearean actors and get them to immerse themselves in Acts 1 to 4, the available Acts, and in the language of Shakespeare and the culture of of Shakespeare and the culture of the time, and then allow them the freedom to improvise Act 5 so that the drama could be completed. And if they're to improvise appropriately, the improvisation would need to be consistent with the story thus far, it would need to make sense of Acts 1 to 4, and in that sense, they would be under the authority of the story. But at the same time, it would need to be an innovation. So Wright says this is a really helpful way for understanding the authority of the Bible. The Bible gives us Acts 1 to 5, or Acts 1 to 4, of the story of salvation, the drama of salvation. The story of creation, of the of the call of Israel, of the coming of Jesus, and it gives us the opening scenes of Acts five, which is the community of the Spirit that seeks to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And it also gives us a few hints about how it's all going to work out in the end. Think of Romans eight as the best example of that. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, just that's just all right. No, I like it. No, I know. He really looks like unlike everybody else. He's listening. That's great. <laughs> The church lives under the authority of the story thus far, but it is required to fill out the remaining part of Act 5 between the first and second coming of Christ, which is unscripted, to fill it out innovatively. It's not enough to simply repeat the story thus far. That gets us nowhere. It's not enough to simply repeat the preceding scenes. The story, if it's a true story, um, is moving on towards a climax. Instead we need to improvise the final act of the drama in a way that is both consistent but also creative. Consistent and creative under the Spirit's leading. To do that we need to know what's going on in Acts 1-4. to But contemporary Christian witness is living in the fifth act and we need in, in uh, Wright's words to make it our own unscripted and yet obedient improvisation. I shared that analogy with students many times, and many said to me, that sounds a bit scary. Um, how do we know we'll get it right? And uh, it is a bit scary, much safer to turn the Bible into a rule book. The problem is, that's not the book we've been given. We've been given a storybook. And I finish with the words of St. Tom. He says this, God does not want to put people in little boxes and keep them safe and sound. It is, after all, this is so classic, Tom Wright, it is, after all, possible to be so sound that you're sound asleep. I am not in favor of unsoundness, but soundness means health, and health means growth, and growth means life and vigor and new directions. The little boxes in which you put people and keep them under control are called coffins. We read scripture not in order to avoid life and growth. Rather, again and again we find that as we submit to scripture, as we wrestle with the bits that don't make sense, and as we burst through to a new sense that we haven't thought of or seen before, God breathes into our nostrils his own breath, the breath of life, and we become living beings. A church recreated in his image, more fully human, thinking, alive beings. So that, I think, is what it means to read the Bible as story.